Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 43. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how'd they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. In this episode, I'm going to sit down with Cheryl Ann Hollinger. Cheryl is an adjunct faculty member at two universities in Portland, Oregon, where she is supporting and supervising six hardworking science teacher candidates. Cheryl taught high school biology for 26 years, teaching AP Biology and Human Anatomy and Physiology for over 20 years. She's also taught biology at the college level. Since 1997, Cheryl has led local, regional, national, and international AP workshops on four continents as a college board consultant. She was a consultant trainer during the AP Biology course redesign and is also a NIMSI consultant, an HHMI ambassador, and a member of the NABT BSCS HHMI Region 9 AP Biology Teacher Academy leadership team. Cheryl has been recognized for teaching excellence, including the NABT Outstanding Biology Teacher Award for the state of Pennsylvania, as a state finalist for the Presidential Award for Excellence in Science Teaching, and the Siemens Award for Excellence in Advanced Placement Science Teaching. In 2011, she was the first recipient of the Kim Folia AP Biology Service Award. Welcome, Cheryl. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to talk to you face to face. We're uh, as we're as yeah. we're video talking here, um, and we were we were talking a little bit before we started recording. We have so many overlapping circles, and I'm I'm I suspect at some point we're gonna go oh that place that time that we were in the same room. Um, but uh, we were we were talking fondly about uh, you know Robin Bellary and some of the other bio ambassadors and um, some of the other people we know in common. So I'm very happy that you can sit down and and talk to me for the show uh, today. My pleasure. All right. So uh, let's get into it because there's a lot of things. And I have a feeling our, our questions are going to sort of dive out into a lot of uh, branches. So um, I'm going to ask you, i like to ask everyone to start. How did you become a science teacher? What led you into a science classroom? Actually, it's serendipity. Um, I have a degree in biology and my life focus was to go to grad school for marine biology and you know, get out there and study algae of all things. And um, then I met my husband uh, in our junior year of college and the rest is um, history. And so we say biology brought us together, but chemistry's made it work. Uh, That's our shtick. Um, I think I wanted to be a teacher when I was a little girl and I kind of put that aside. And I feel very fortunate because I had two mentors who were teachers. One was my eighth grade science teacher and the second one was my um, biology teacher in high school. And I had him twice. I had him for regular bio, honors bio and then advanced bio. So mm-hmm. they gave me the, the, the courage to pursue a biology degree. Um, when I got out of college, there were no jobs <laughs> at all. And um, so I actually worked in the publishing industry in, uh, I wouldn't say it's a factory, but if you remember Reader's Digest mm-hmm. and they used to produce condensed books, I worked for a company that made those and I was on the science textbook team. So since I was the educated nerd, mm-hmm. they, I could uh, figure out the angles on benzene rings better than other people. So it was <laughs> literally cut and paste back then. Um, then I was a stay-at-home mom for about three years 
uh, with my children. And I just got a little tired of Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers. And my brain was turning to mush. So um, my husband said, you said you always wanted to be a teacher. Why don't you check it out? So I did. And I pursued my teaching license at York College of Pennsylvania. And here I am today. Wow. So you did you did not like go through college and be like, yeah, I'm going to take these education classes and do that. You you sort of went through college without that education plan and then came back to it. I actually did take two education courses and the second one involved observations actually out in the field. Mm -hmm. I was two years older than the students I was observing (laughs) and I was about as mature as they were, Mm -hmm. which was not mature at all at the time. And I just said, I can't do this. But when I went back as a mom and about 10 years older, it was a nice, it was a nice event because I had the maturity hmm. and I had more life experience. Yeah, it was the, the right time with the right experience kind of match. Yes. Well, that's kind of neat. So now turn forward and now, you know, it, it's 2018 and you are supervising uh, new teachers in your current role. Um, and so I imagine that they may not be. 10 years older than the kids who are <laughs> who, who are in the classroom. In some cases, they may be. But um, I just wonder about your path into the classroom versus the what you're seeing for the new teachers. Um, how is it different from your training and your early career support as a teacher, uh, what you're seeing that these new teachers are going through? Well, I work with um, two master's programs. Mm-hmm. So all of my student teachers are going to get an MAT. Mm-hmm. So they ha- they are specialists in their field and they are older. They tend to be older. Some are more than 10 years older than <laughs> their students. Um, but the bottom line is they have so much more support than I did. When I took my courses, I had secondary education courses. I didn't have a science methods courses course at all. Oh, wow. And so when I started student teaching, I was very fortunate to be with a master teacher who taught me how to be a good biology teacher. <laughs> but they have a lot of support, um, not only me, but the actual education department at the colleges. And they also have a cooperating teacher or mentor. So I, I think this comes up a lot when I talk to both veteran teachers and also newer teachers. Uh, the The community of educators that are out there, whether, you know, it's it's the Facebook community or, uh, you know, we have the College Board community if you teach AP or the NSTA listservs and there's these organizations. And it's not to say those organizations weren't around, you know, many years ago, but the the omnipresence of these and the ability to have them and carry them around in your pocket um, was not something <laughs> that existed uh, when you or I started teaching. Uh, it, does that does that extra information, I could view it in two ways. I could view it as a support. I could also see it as overwhelming. Um, how, how does the, how does this, the community of teachers, does it have an impact at all on these new teachers or teaching candidates? Absolutely. Um, I always recommend to my student teachers to join Facebook pages, you know, groups or whatever. Um, but they're not really comfortable yet since they are not, they are pre-service teachers. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is when I started teaching, I went in the classroom, I was by myself. And when you teach, especially an AP course, you're 
most times you're the only person teaching that course and it's a very lonely existence. And so the original AP biology listserv was the lifeline back in the nineties. And so people today take for granted that you can pull out a phone and you can surf the web. It's not a big deal. Whereas, you know, we had the big honk and Apple two E's mm-hmm. and things like that. So the technology has made it so much easier to make connections, but I agree with you. It actually can be overwhelming. And so We sometimes give new teachers too much information, and I plead guilty to that, or too many options, and then they say, what do I do? Because I just can't pick. And it's it's difficult. Another thing I see is that a lot of new teachers will say, just could you give me your stuff? Could you just share it with me? And yeah, I can share it with you, but it's my stuff, and you have to make it your own. And so I can give you resources, but don't try to do what I do you know, do your own thing. And so it's, it is a double-edged sword. Yeah. Another thing that I, I wonder a little bit, um, and this is sort of spinning off this, and this is, this is something that I've come about thinking as I've, uh, I don't know if maybe say matured myself as a teacher the last few years. And I mentioned before that you were a member of the NABT BSCS HHMI uh, group. And I went to a summer workshop uh, with Chi and Robin and mm-hmm. Val and Caitlin and that whole group down there in Florida last year. It strikes me when I talk to teachers who are in their first five or six years uh, of teaching, the the concept of the of theory and constructivism and sort of educational theory and putting it into practice when I went through my methods courses and I went through that 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 work that I did in college, I remember sort of going through that and then I would go to my job and I would teach because I was working on my master's while I was teaching. And the mm-hmm. veteran teachers would be like, yeah, no, that like this, get that out of here. That's not what you do. That's not what you work. <laughs> and that way. But it strikes me now that the conversations that the veteran teachers and the experienced teachers and the master's teachers are having are actually in line with that constructivist, uh, that flow. Does that is that a, a true perspective? Are you seeing that with the, the pairing of the teachers and, and how they're getting trained, um, that they're not necessarily getting dissuaded for, away from that stuff? Or are they still hitting that wall? No, they are not hitting that wall at all because I've been in middle schools and high schools in several different school districts in several different states. And the constructivist approach is, I would say, 90, 95% mm. used most often in 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 schools, grades nine through 12, I've seen it in sixth grade. And, and the idea is to get the kids involved in their own learning. And the whole idea of the flipped classroom used to seem, oh, wow, this is novel. It's so cool and neat. Now it's, it's just, oh, it's just, this is what we do. Yeah. It's the classroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the norm. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, I, I was struck by having a conversation with a younger teacher and they were, they were saying things to me and I was like having flashbacks to, you know, being in grad school in like 96, 97. And, and, uh, and I remember this person came in and I forget what they were doing, but I, it was like, we were building things and like, you know, it was like we were making paper airplanes and we were, it was like, really, it was, you know, uh, an engineering design. It was very NGSS, like way before NGSS. And I remember talking to one of my, my colleagues and they were like, yeah, that's pointless. Like we got to get through this textbook. We got to get like, Mm -hmm. and I felt like the, the, the way we were taught, it was almost like there was this enormous disconnect. We needed to have that 15 year growth to get to next gen science standards to get to the ap redesign um and now i don't feel like there's that disconnect so if you're going in and getting a master's in education now 
you come out and see these standards and the standards mirror, you know, what you're being trained to do. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm a little buoyed to hear that because I, 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 there is still a fear in mind that, of mine that, you know, maybe we're talking about exceptional classrooms and, and maybe this doesn't reflect what's going all over the nation, but I'm hopeful that that's the trend that's going on. I, I agree. And I live in an NGSS state. So everywhere I go, mm-hmm. the standards are talked about. There's a lot of support for teachers, pre-service teachers. Teachers are out there in the field. A lot of workshops going on with NGSS training. So I, again, they have so many more places to get help and support. And as teachers, we know they need it. We all need it. You don't want to be that one person teaching the course in your school without having a lifeline. And so I, I really am excited about the direction that science education is taking. Yeah. All right. So let's, I think I'm sort of building in nicely. So this sort of builds into sort of the second broader question. And I mentioned again in the intro that you were involved in the AP redesign and, and some of the training involved. Um, and so maybe this is like a, a, a really big question. We may go a few places off from that, but um, this, this goes to some of the reflections I'm doing with my classroom um, and from what you're seeing. So looking back at the redesign and what we've been doing, like, how is it going when you run summer institutes or you talk to other teachers and and you train teachers um you know how do you think the redesign from what we had hoped for into what we get um how do you think it's going overall i think it's going really well i personally wasn't involved in the curriculum framework redesign mm-hmm. but um i was also on the um, ap insight team and we were there were eight of us subject matter experts and we use the curriculum framework a lot. So I became very, very familiar with it. And I was excited to see the changes because 52 chapters, (laughs) we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to go from book cover to book cover. And that's huge. And I know even today it's overwhelming, especially for newer teachers who aren't familiar with the content and how to teach it. But overall, it's it's been uh, a very good thing for AP science courses. And biology was picked. First, because it was the course whose scores were least reliable in predicting student success in college. Mm. And as a result of any of the mistakes that were made during the AP bio course redesign, everything that came after that, at least in the sciences, was a lot smoother. And I think the fact that people say, oh, look, this is an illustrative example, or in the curriculum framework where it says this is beyond the scope of the course, that means I don't have to teach it. And I see the same thing in NGSS classrooms. Oh, that means I don't have to teach it. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily true. I love plants. And I think plants have disappeared, for Mm -hmm. the most part, from the curriculum framework. But if I want to use how plants reproduce as an illustrative example, and it's something I'm passionate about, let's go for it. Mm-hmm. And bringing in anatomy and physiology when I'm teaching. So I think people say, well, this is my way out of not having to teach it. And so for me, that means that the experience may be less, what's the best word I want to use? Maybe less um, fruitful for students. In other words, hey, you know, I just learned about this in my class today. That's something I think I might want to pursue in the future because I think plants are really cool, or I think ecology is really cool. So if we just 
stay, I'm just going to stick with the curriculum framework and I'm not going to expand beyond that. I think overall students will uh, not be hurt, but it will be detrimental in some ways. But then again, new teachers, they're struggling. I'm not going to expect a new teacher to do that. And again, we know it takes at least three years to feel comfortable. And so with the redesign, I think overall it's been very successful. So you, what, the way you described it, it made me think a little bit about my thinking in terms of what what I did and my colleague. And I am unique in the sense that I am not the only AP biology teacher, and I do have a collaborator I work with. Um, and the, I thought that when the re- redesign came along, it was fantastic for us because we were like trying to fit these other things in, and we really didn't have time. And there was this frustration that we had, and um, you know, frankly, the dirty dozen labs were all kind of. <laughs> They were kind of stupid. They were kind of stupid. Um, yeah. Like, oh, you put the plants in the light. They do more photosynthesis, huh? Glad we spent all that time putting them in the light um, to find that out. So it was. I I was very frustrated with both the 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 depth of thinking required on the labs and just the the volume of content. So it was for me fantastic. But now, with the hindsight, what I realized we did is sort of what you were talking about. We took the curriculum and we took the frameworks and we just axed out all the content that was not on that framework, which opened up the space for us to have students do science. So for me, I I really do think the thing that I have been doing really well over the last, you know, however many years we've been doing this since the redesign is the two things I would say that are really well, uh, doing really well is the kids are doing baseline labs, asking questions. They're learning how to ask a good scientific question. They're learning how to do research to find out what's out there. They're modifying materials and methods appropriately to evaluate the question. They're using now statistics, computational thinking to evaluate their data. Um, I think that 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 process is there. But when I step back and look at the overall course, um, I don't think I... I don't think I redesigned or re-envisioned the content component. Um, and from your words, it's kind of sounded like that's I'm not alone, that you're seeing that, that people just either when they're starting the course, they're like, nope, beyond the scope of the AP, uh, this chapter's not in the, the not on the design, so we cut that. Is, that. is that true? Is that sort of the way you're seeing things, that people are using that curriculum as a, um, a guidebook of what to teach from a content standpoint and are not being maybe creative enough or flexible enough in terms of thinking about their curriculum? Yes. In a, in a word, yes. And for me, I just want to step back a minute. For me, my aha moment after the course redesign was the leaf disc lab. Mm. I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. We did this with ninth graders and it really didn't work that well. And so um, my class was being filmed for an online course for the college board. And so one day we had the class do the original, the, the um, spectrophotometer lab, you just like the old lab mm-hmm. and, and the kids, the instructions were overwhelming and you just saw them. They were looking down and they were reading, even though I gave them the, the lab two days before and we went over it and I showed them the setup. Mm-hmm. They were confused. They were lost. And one girl just said, I'm done. I'm done. I, I just, I don't even know what I'm doing and why. And then the next day, they were filmed doing the leaf disc lab. And the same girl was saying, I know labs. I can do labs. Labs are awesome. Mm-hmm. And that was when the light bulb went off. It's it's not 
the difficulty of the lab, it's teaching kids how to do science and to think and act like scientists. And since then, I'm, I'm a disciple. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I 100% agree with you. Is, is that translation of... Um, and, and so for me, it's interesting because you do work with the summer institutes uh, with people who do that. And my summer institute was in the old system. Um, right. And I took a summer institute with some people. Some of the people sitting at the table were already teaching the AP. And I I had sort of shadowed the AP um, because I knew I was going to be coming in. The, our class had been growing. My colleague Brian had been teaching three sections of nearly 30 students you know, um, which you could very easily get away with. I don't, I don't know that you could do it now with all the labs and how we do it um, today. But it was, you know, it was fire hose of Campbell for however months <laughs> we did it. That was what you did, um, and he had all his notes and he had everything there. And so I went and did that. But the talk during that summer institute was the redesign is coming. Like, so I was going to, I got told a little bit about this is how you accomplish it for this because we, the, this is the testing, but coming soon is going to be this redesign. Um, and so I got an inkling. So I actually learned about the leaf disc lab and I learned about some of the labs that were in the pipeline for that redesign that were, that was coming down the line that, that was thought, you know, Joan Carlson was the, was my yeah. trainer. And so oh, jo- she's great. Yeah. So Joan was, Joan was sort of giving an inkling of these are the things coming down the pike uh, on that. But I remember talking to, you know, some of the other teachers who are teaching AP and they were saying things like, yeah, we don't do the labs. We just uh, I just have the kids do the um, online simulations um, because we don't have time. And like this is in the old course. So my question now is, is that is that universal? Are are, Are teachers now using the lab to drive curriculum everywhere? Or are there people who are still teaching that content, you know, that curriculum content, the Campbell is still there. It's still like 80% PowerPoint and Mm -hmm. they drop their labs in, in the, the units is, are we, are we fully shifted there or are we still in that shifting process? Do you get a sense of that from talking to people and, and who you're seeing? I do. I think that people are all over the place. Still some people say, Hey, it's been working for 20 years and I'm just going to do what I keep on doing. Uh, but if you if you're not evolving in your own practice, it, it does make it difficult. So when I lead summer institutes and anybody who's been to a summer institute I've led since the redesign can tell you the curriculum framework is like the skeleton. Mm-hmm. It's the framework. But the framework cannot come alive unless muscles are attached to it. Mm-hmm. And the muscles of the AP biology curriculum, the whole teaching the course part of it is the science practices because those science practices include all those verbs that we want kids to know and be able to do describe, explain, analyze, and so forth. And that's what the kids are going to be seeing or are seeing on the AP exam now. So the science practices are the glue that hold everything together. And I see the same thing with NGSS because a lot of the science practices are the same and written by the same people. So to me, it's getting kids involved in doing science that will allow them to have a better understanding of science and hopefully be scientifically literate citizens in the future, mm-hmm. even if they don't even go to, into biology. That was interesting because as you were, you were getting up to that point that the muscles, I was like, what's she going to say? What's she going to say? And you said the science practices. And in my head, I was wondering if you were going to say the labs or doing labs or doing investigations. But 
Um, and again, this is sort of reflecting my own personal and you know, thoughts about how I structure my curriculum and, and what I do. I think my answer to that question, certainly it was, you know, six years ago, my answer was, was the lapse. But as you say, the science practices, are there enough people thinking about science practices is that there's more than one way, more than investigations as a way of accessing that? Is that a, is that a truism that people think of that? And I know like we could talk about, you know, yeah, I know Valerie May knows that. I know that <laughs> I know that she knows that. I know I that know Robin she, Valeri does yeah. that. I know those yeah. people do it. But to like like not the not the people who are like who are killing it out there doing that. Does do most AP bio teachers and do new teachers know that there's a variety of ways of accessing, you know, the science practices, whether we're talking NGSS or we're talking AP? Yes and no. Yes, if they've been in one of my summer institutes. <laughs> no, if they have not figured that out. Because again, we have 13 labs, mm -hmm. but again, we don't have to do all of those labs as long as we do a lab that meets the science practices. And so I think with with newer teachers, I don't feel, feel that they have the confidence because they're struggling and they're just dealing with the content. But that does not preclude them from using Pogles that does not preclude them from using case studies, which I see a lot of them are doing this already. And also um, argument-driven inquiry, ADI is, is a great way to do that. So if we get our kids reading and writing in science and we do everyday writing in our science class, whether it's an exit pass or just a, a question on the board when they come in to get them thinking about science, that's what's really important is because if you just say, oh, science practices, oh, that's the labs. That's when we'll address them. Then you're not coming at teaching AP by with a holistic approach. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm a global thinker. So I see the big picture and I can break it down. And of course, everybody is different. But I see that if you don't think big, you're not going to be able to really get your kids excited about science. So the content is very important. And we use that to get kids thinking and acting like scientists, which are the science practices. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to keep them apart. No, but it, I, you, you sparked a really interesting thought from, again, from the, um, from the leadership uh, workshops that I, as I said, the ones that I went to, and I know you've been involved with, um, one of the big things that we talked about last summer, which it's been rolling over in my head all ever since I walked out, is this concept of of describing uh, our curriculum through storylines. And yes. it's it's a radically, I mean, maybe radically is the wrong word, but to me, it's it's radically different than the way my, you know, like <laughs> I've been doing this for 23 years. So like, mm -hmm. how do I design my units? I start with ecosystems, then I do matter and energy, then I do stuff. Like, I, I think of my units as these chunks. And it, and for my whole career, I have said this, and I've been complaining about this, that the thing that drives me crazy about unit structure is that students take the units and they think of the content in buckets, and it encourages them to do mass practice studying, cram for a test, and then forget everything that was in that bucket, and then move on to the next bucket. And it's it's been this internal frustration I've had my whole career, but it's still the way I've always designed it. And so now I've been having this conversation with a handful of colleagues, you know, with, with the person I teach AP with, that maybe we should not be structuring them around our units, but around questions and saying, here's our unit. We're going to be around a, a question. Um, I'm going to ask you, is it practical 
for me to come up with, I don't know what the number is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I've heard a few different answers. <laughs> I'm thinking of Jen Fannersill, who's told me she's, she's designing her curriculum around four questions. But I know I'm not Jen Fannersill. But so is there a number? <laughs> no, no, you're not. <laughs> I know, I know, I know I'm not. So, but, and well, I mean, you have a beard, you're a yeah. guy, and you're not. <laughs> I meant it from the uh, the the, the the intellectual uh, giant uh, that is yes. is Jen and and yes. the way she uh, she approaches her curriculum and and the boldness with that. But if is it really practical for a for a teacher to say I'm going to go away from this unit structure and I'm going to structure my 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 entire curriculum around six questions or eight questions and realistically cover the content. Mm-hmm. And master those practices. Are these? Is this a is is this a, a realistic task to ask teachers to do? Uh, well, you use the word cover, and yeah. we know what cover means. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it's not it out in the open. Mm-hmm. So somebody dissuaded me from ever saying this is what we cover in this course. Yeah. This is what students will learn Excellent in point. this course. So um, for me, I focus on the four big ideas and their interconnectedness. And so at the beginning of the school year with my AP kids, I would talk about, um, we would start with evolution, just the the mini unit, the intro, which is basically chapter one and do nature of science stuff. And I told them that, you know, evolution is the unifying concept in biology and we're going to be coming back to it. But then I also bring in how each of the other big ideas fit with big idea one and so forth. So again, it's weaving a picture or a story together, a storyline. So you can call them themes, you can call them questions, or you can call them big ideas. But if you give students a holistic picture of what they're seeing and say, remember when we talked about this in you know, October? Well, what's happening here now? in March Mm. and how are they connected and why is that important? And so for me, it was getting kids to get a little uncomfortable at first because they weren't used to that. Mm -hmm. But after a while they started making the connections. I didn't even have to bring it up, which is amazing for 16, 17 and 18 year old kids to do. Yeah, that's ultimately the goal. Yes. <laughs> Let's get them to do those things. All right. I uh I have a I was I, one other thing that was making me th- as I as I was thinking about this this um AP redesign and the things that were doing well and things that were not doing well and I feel like, you know, I've got this un, un, un got an unpaid consultant in front of me now that I'm interviewing you like an, <laughs> I'm just like abusing abusing the no. privilege of the interview here. Um but the the other thing that I was thinking about is um accessing the curriculum and sort of, you know, I teach in a school where it's, it's a tracked school. We don't have open enrollment, but we don't have closed enrollment. Um, the mm-hmm. prerequisites are pretty open, but the fact is, is that, um, I tend to get a pretty high level of clientele taking AP biology. Most of my AP biology students have taken honors biology. Um, they've all taken chemistry. Most of them have taken honors chemistry. I will have 20% of my students will have taken AP chemistry. So they've had bi- honors biology, mm-hmm. honors chem, AP chem. Some of those kids also had AP stats. 
I tell them those are the kids who find the course easy um, because that's like the perfect, like perfect background to walk in. But at the same time, I also have students who may not have been academically mature as freshmen or sophomores and they were they maybe had a rough time in middle school and and so they start got in some other levels and they don't have quite that depth and breadth in there um and so i wonder about making it accessible for all students when you get this disparity of kids who come through in there had there have there been any um revelations of, you know, either personal experience or working with teachers who work with homogeneous groupings to help them access the AP and really help students find success, even if there's, you know, they're coming in at very different places, how to get them to get to the growth that they can get to by that end of the year. Is there any secrets or, you know, uh, <laughs> special sauce or anything that you've come across that sort of helps, particularly in this idea of practices? Because I think that the students who've had the higher level courses have had a lot of those practices weaved into their curriculum, but a student who may not or, you know, he may not have been just a strong student, may not have accessed them and developed those skills early on, even when they got exposed to them, um, regardless of what level they took in. That's a really, really, really good question. And it's it's very difficult. But for me, I truly believe in equity and access for students. And if anybody hasn't really looked carefully, it, the College Board states that st they highly recommend that students have biology and chemistry before taking AP biology. Mm -hmm. And that was never really clear before, but it's actually clear now. And so we don't want to set kids up for failure. But I'll tell you a story. I'm a storyteller, mm -hmm. as you can see. I had a student in one of my ninth grade honors biology classes, and he was a first-generation American. And I told him, I'm going to see you in AP Bio in the future because you have a lot of talent, and you're very smart, and you're very, very capable. I had him in anatomy and physiology when he was a junior, and I said, Shamie? If you're, I hope he's not listening now, but Shamie. <laughs> Unless he's a, like one of 12 people who listen to this. And he's <laughs> um, I said, I'm going to see you in AP biology next year because I know you can do it. So I think what it takes is a teacher who actually encourages students to challenge themselves. I have friends who have open access and that, yes, they have struggles with their students, but they're there for their students because they care about their students and they know that even if a kid gets a one or a two on the AP course, they're going to go to college with a heck of a lot more background knowledge than kids that don't. And I did have Shamie when he was a senior in AP biology. And he went on to an Ivy League college. He's doing very well mm -hmm. nowadays. And if we have teachers who believe in kids and not say, oh, those kids, mm -hmm. What are we going to do with those kids? No, they're you, my kids, and my kids are important to me, and I want to see them be successful. If you don't teach the first-year course and you have five different people teaching it, you can tell who they had when you see them in AP Bio, if you see them in AP Bio. Um, but, again, there are too many variables in this mm. conundrum to have one definite answer. It's just it's having a teacher believing in a kid giving them a chance to succeed. I know Massachusetts has done really well with Mass Insight. Maryland had a huge uh, ton of money to incorporate or to encourage more um, underrepresented groups in AP classrooms. And, and the results are 
are coming out now. The scores are improving, more kids are taking the courses, and whether they take the test or not, I'm still going to be very proud of them mm -hmm. because they learned a lot and they feel confident when they leave. Yeah, I think I, I'm I'm a I'm obviously a big convert and believer in what students can get out of AP. Um, I just sometimes I struggle with the communication piece of this is fighting also student culture and community right. culture and that sort of thing of making sure that when I say, yes, you can access this AP curriculum, that it's something that I actually agree on. And it needs to go beyond for me, just the belief that everyone can access it. I'm setting up the structures though. So I've got the kid who's sitting there, who's, you know, in going to be in the top 10 of his class and is going to go to the Ivy league school and has taken honors bio and honors chem and AP chem and AP stats and is an AP calculus and is an, AP physics and he's taking AP biology and it's easy for that kid. Not that mm -hmm. it's easy. He's still working very hard or she's working very hard. But that student who I have, I, I think of the first students who I ever had who, who I realized had had that um, had had that arc. And I was going over protein structure and I was going over all, you know, the various bonding. And I can remember this girl, Catherine, who was sitting there in class in front of me. And the I, she asked me. Uh, like a chemical bonding question that was like an organic chemistry bonding question about like she identified she was like so those are like those are diester bonds or something it was like one of those kind of things where like yeah. I just had the diagram up and I'm just going over the intro basics and was like you know clearly this kid was having no problem with the biochemistry but at the same yeah. time sitting next to that kid may have been a student who struggled in junior high and may have had our not our honors level bio but the level below that and took the honors chem below that and and isn't in calculus and and this is mm -hmm. this may be the only AP class that the student's taking, but they're interested in science and they're interested in biology and they they think they want to go down a medical career path and so they've signed up for this class. And I've got those two kids sitting next to each other. And right. how do I make sure that the the scaffolding is in place to help those students, you know, identify where they are and where they need to grow? And I agree, the exposure is going to be great, but at the same time, um, I want the I want the growth to be visible in the minds of the kid. I don't want it to be a "you should be proud of yourself" comment from me. I want mm -hmm. it to be um, internal. You know what I yes. mean, and, and yes, I want I them do. to be able to identify those pieces. So, um, yeah. yeah, I think. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. No. Go ahead. Um, the last year I taught AP Biologies, um, sixty percent of the students had never had biology before because we flipped like to a physics first model. Mm -hmm. So even though they were coming in, most of them were juniors and seniors. I do get sophomores in there. Sixty percent had wow. never had biology, and yes, it does slow you down but you can make accommodations and you can diversify and differentiate. And if they understand biology and how to do it, that's, that's a win-win situation. Mm -hmm. So I, I know how you feel. Exactly. Yeah. I had kids who I had for three years in different courses, including um, anatomy and physiology. And they know me, they know what the expectations. And then somebody's like not a, t a 10th grader and they're in a course with, college level textbooks yeah it's a challenge all right so i guess that does answer my what are we doing well what can we do better i think we've got i've got myself a list i'll be able to put together a nice list of things i need to do better um <laughs> going forward all right so in the upcoming years uh what are you looking forward to seeing in in the classrooms um that that you help support and the and within the new teachers classrooms that you're going to be working with 
Well, the reason I decided to become a student teacher supervisor is I had at least nine student teachers when I was in the classroom, and I've mentored new AP biology consultants, six of them, and I like it. I like helping other people, which is why I'm on lots of different (laughs) uh, sites and communities. How difficult it was for me to teach AP biology. I did not go to an APSI before I taught it. Even though I taught it when I student taught, I had no idea how to teach it. It's a very lonely situation. Mm -hmm. And my first year was a very difficult struggle. And I never want to have anybody else have to feel that way again. So that's why I feel that if I can pay it forward to other people and say, I'm sharing things with you because I want you to be successful, I feel that I'm paying it forward to the next generation of teachers and to the next generation of students. And so may my name might not be remembered, but I hope my legacy lives on <laughs> in in the future. Yeah, so you're looking for just that, the, that product, that, that confident young teacher, the, or maybe as, as confident as possible young teacher, <laughs> uh, because it's, it's hard to be confident in those first few years without it being false bravado. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, a, a stronger core of people helping those, the, the students that we're going to have in the next couple of generations. Yes. And so I, I, I haven't been out of the classroom that long, so mm-hmm. it's fresh in my memory. And if I have a resource or an idea that said, hey, I, I share it with them. And every time we have our debrief after an observation, we talk. And I say, have you thought about this? Have you heard of that? You know, um, have you tried using HHMI resources or Genetic Science Learning Center? No, I, I don't know about those. What about data nuggets? Have you heard of them? No. So, you know, I share that with them. And more than one of my student teachers have actually said to me at the end of our conversation, you know, I feel so much better when we sit down and talk because you calm me down (laughs) and make me feel that I can do this. And so that's why I really enjoy it because I love helping, especially new teachers. And these are even not even new teachers, but (laughs) I just think that, we all have to help each other and we all have to support each other. And I know in some places, if you're the only teacher, it's very lonely, but nowadays it's so easy to find like-minded people who are willing to share and talk and celebrate together. Yeah. Yeah. You make me sad that I'm not going to NSTA. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is going to come out like the week, the end of the closing of the weekend of NSTA, but it's, but you're absolutely right. That community, that community piece. Um, Are you beyond just the Facebook group and that sort of thing? Is there a mechanism to help uh, these, these pre-service teachers, these teaching candidates join state biology teaching association and NSTA and that sort of thing? Is that, is that a cornerstone of, of the training or is it just something that you do as you support them? It's something I do as I support them. Uh, I was on the executive board and for the Pennsylvania science teachers association. And now I'm on the executive board here in Oregon for the Oregon science teachers association. So, and I'm also a member of NABT of course, um, and NSTA. But for me, I just, I just know that, um, anything I can do 
to help my student teachers make connections with other people. That is invaluable hmm. in my in my mind. And they do have more support, which is good. Yeah. But they also need to hear from someone besides the professor who's teaching the methods class. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So when you are not working with uh, these new teachers, I mean, some people would say you leave the classroom, you retire, but you don't sound like you have retirement down, but you must have some downtime when you're not, you know, going to committees and running AP institutes and working with teachers. So what do you like to do uh, in your non-teaching, non-supporting teaching time? Well, thank you for reconfirming um, my thoughts about being a failure at retirement. I really appreciate that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you never, I, you never told me you were retired. Like I just to be no, fair to us, but <laughs> but when when people leave the classroom, that's sort of the normal thought yeah. is that that's what happens. So <laughs> no, I I have just um, transformed into another life. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I don't know about retirement. It, it, to me, um. Yeah, I don't even know if I'll ever say I retired. So I think I can say the same thing for my husband. But what I do love is spending time with my husband. Um, we have a great life here in Portland. We can walk to movies, bars, restaurants, theaters. And um, there's a lot to do here. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a beautiful area. And and I really don't miss the snow that much. <laughs> I Not much. I mean, we had a couple of inches here this year. And that was okay. It was nice. It was pretty. And then it was gone. And I love to hike. Um, I love, we love to go camping. We love to travel. We love adventure. And so we started doing that with our kids when they were little camping, hiking and all that stuff. And we continue to do it today. So we have fun and we take some fun vacations, but we both have part-time jobs but you know the nice thing about this transition mm-hmm. from teaching full-time to not teaching full-time is that you get to pick and choose what you want to do and you can follow your passion and so I love being a teacher and I will always say I'm a teacher when someone meets me and I just know that as long as you're passionate about what you do it's going to make you happy nice yeah, I can't I can't even process the concept of like retiring. So <laughs> I actually said <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I said I said I said that to my wife the other day cuz we were actually having a very funny conversation. Um I don't remember what came up. It was something about uh pensions or whatever had been in in her her work. They were talking about that and I was like I was like, yeah, I realize that whenever I decide that I'm going to get out of the classroom, I'm going to have to find something to do because there's going to be a gap cuz technically mm-hmm. I'm probably going to leave the classroom before she stops going to work every day. And if I sit around the house, which I can't envision <laughs> do, like I just get the not who I am. I think most people who know mm-hmm. me, I fill my days pretty well. And I sit around the house all day and she goes to work and comes back. I will drive her crazy because I'll be like, I'll be like, so what was today? Like, what was that? <laughs> Cause yeah. I remember our first, one of our first years uh, married before we had kids. 
uh, we had had a gap where I normally did something during the summer, but there was a time where I had a couple weeks between when I worked this my summer job and when school started. And I remember her coming home, and I had been home all day. And I was like, hey, so how was today? She's like, you got to let me walk in the door. you got to let me <laughs> decompress for a few minutes. And I was like, yeah. I, I had this flash forward to 35 years later. I was like, oh, this is going to be a problem someday. <laughs> We had that we had that reboot conversation just a few few days ago. So, all right. So, uh, I you let me grill you and ask you questions here for you know more than forty minutes. Um, do you have any questions for me before we get to picks of the episode? Um, well, I just want to put a plug in for all the NABT BSCS uh, Biology Teacher Academies because we are working on having one in the Pacific Northwest. So mm-hmm. we're hoping to expand on the West Coast. But anybody from anywhere in the country and overseas who wants to come to one of the regional teacher academies, it's so worth it. I can honestly say that even though I was experienced as a teacher, attending the Leadership Academy really did transform the way I teach and the way I look at how to teach, what to teach all the tools I learned there have been invaluable and I always try to share those with other people. So that's my plug. If you, if anybody's out there listening who is <laughs> like to know more about how to teach biology, I don't want to say better, but differently should go to one of the academies and you don't have to be an AP teacher. Yeah. I saw, I saw that they took that off last year in the registration. It said AP and I noticed that this year mm-hmm. the language took the words AP out of that. Which I right. thought was I thought was very smart because um, I haven't actually used any of well I shouldn't say any the most of the changes that I made as a result from that experience actually did not happen in my AP classes they happened in my honors class and my other class that I teach um, and it's not to say that it hasn't influenced it but the immediate changes the work that we did in that um, in that summertime pointed out the the gaps or holes in my curriculum in my other classes. Um, as more glaring. Um, and it sort of inspired me to go down the pathway of making sure that I fixed those components. So so that was a plug. Do you have any uh, questions before we get to picks? Um, let's see. Hmm. So how long have you been teaching? So this is, see, I started in 96. So this is wrapping up 22 years. Okay. So... So do you see yourself going for the the big three five or yeah i I you know the funny thing is i've said I've said to a few people the last like you know four or five years in particular, I've been having so much fun teaching that Yay. i like I'm having more fun now teaching than I've ever had before i like I don't can't imagine what what ending this is like now um now I imagine that you know. 13, 14 years from now, when I'm getting text messages from Ryan Reardon, it's not going to be about my classroom. <laughs> uh, oh, I know. It's... I know Ryan's okay. I know it's yeah. okay. <laughs> okay. He wasn't texting me about my classroom last night anyway. But but the point is, is that I, I you know, I, I do have this envision, like right now I'm having this great time and I have all these colleagues and, and that sort of thing. And I do envision that this group that I've sort of started to interact with, this, you know, that are all over the place as we age, different people are going to take on different roles and people, different people are going to teach. And I, right now it's hard to envision because everyone who's in that grouping that I'm talking to is going, getting up in the morning and going to a school every day. Right. But, you know, 
10, 12 years from now, are they all going to be getting up and going to schools every day? And if they're not, then the way I reflect on what I do and who I am and how I can best serve kids and how I can best serve education is going to change. And That's true. So the answer is I, I can't envision what the next thing is um, because of where I am and what I'm doing. But I acknowledge the fact that it's not going to be like it is right now forever. Um, and that as those things change and as the 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 people who who give me life and inspire me and communicate with me via Twitter or Facebook or text message or whatever, who, as they move on to other challenges and they start to tackle other challenges in their careers, um, new opportunities are going to open up for me as well. And who knows what those types of things. Um, I can pretty yeah. confidently say, unlike when I first started teaching, I really don't see myself ever going into high school administration. Um, <laughs> I, I could very easily say that I'm a teacher and I could see myself either teaching or working with teachers, but I can't see myself doing anything that doesn't directly have an impact on high school biology and high school science classes. Yeah, so. don't go to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't call it the dark side, but that's, yeah. that's fine. No, it's, it's a joke. It's, yeah, I, I, I say that and administrators will laugh. Yeah. Um, but for me, I knew what I wanted to do after I wasn't teaching anymore. And I moved all the way across the country hmm. and I was looking for the jobs that I have now. And hmm. it took a year and a half, but I finally have the opportunity. And I don't go to school every day of the week, but probably at least four days a week I get up and go to school hmm. and I'm with, kids and teachers in classes and I get to walk around and talk to them yeah. while they're doing cool activities. And so when I leave, I don't have a briefcase or a book bag full of things to grade. I just have to write up my report. So for me, it's a win-win situation. I still get my school fix. You know, you walk in like school, I smell it, you know, <laughs> and, and you're with the kids and they're great. And the teachers are great. And the student teachers are great. And you walk out thinking, yeah, this is really cool. Yeah. So maybe I want to be, I want to be you when I grow up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I want your job. All right. So now we're at picks of the episode. Uh, Cheryl, what is your pick of the episode? My pick is an article about the most recent species of tardigrades or mm -hmm. water bears, as they're commonly called, yep. has been discovered in a parking lot in Japan in some moss and a Japanese scientist saw this moss growing and just took some scrapings and lo and behold, it's a brand new species of tardigrade and it has some very interesting eggs that have spiky things on them. Um, he actually sequenced its genome. So that's how we knew it was a totally different species. And ever since I, I used to do science Friday now with my, AP kids and we would listen to the podcast mm -hmm. ever since we saw we listened to the the tardigrade podcast I've been fascinated because they're just I don't know they're just so small but also kind of cute yeah and they're just amazing little critters and they're so hardy they've been out in space and they can handle anything and so maybe if we're having a really bad day just like let's think like a tardigrade because <laughs> I can do anything if I really want to but it's, it's really kind of neat. But the cool thing is, unlike most tardigrades, they can actually reproduce, like I say, in captivity in in the lab. Oh, wow. And so that's why it's, it's really exciting. And call me a nerd because I will gladly respond to that. 
but uh, we don't have to see big critters to appreciate the world around us. And tardigrades are just awesome. Yeah. They, uh, they have a non-mammal bracket this year in the uh, March Mammal Madness. I don't ah. know if you've been seeing the March Mammal, yes. Mammal Madness brackets. And the tardigrade is in that one. And, yes. I, and I'm, uh, I'm in the process of, so this is early March that we're recording this. So my, my, I'm doing this with my alternative program. So we actually have a big shared doc. And I signed all the different students, uh, different animals in there. And we're filling that document out. Um, so we're getting there. But when I first saw the tardigrade, I was like, how do you kill a tardigrade? How's the tardigrade even going <laughs> to, it's, it's going up against like an anaconda or something crazy in the first, right? Like, you know, in there, but I was like, but how do you kill a tardigrade? I guess you could eat it and that would kill the tardigrade. But um, mm-hmm. you know, that was my first thought when I saw that you had tardigrade as your pick. I, it made me think of the, the March yeah. Mammal Madness bracket. And I was like, how do you kill a tardigrade? <laughs> well, this one's, a, this one's a vegan. Oh, it only eats, vegan. yeah, it's vegan. Yeah. It eats yeah. algae. So it's probably doomed. Um, so <laughs> it'll be long gone by the time this episode comes out. <laughs> All right. So um, I totally just changed my pick on you because I had something and I totally even forgot it was. But I uh, I deleted it and I changed it <laughs> because I was listening to uh, Science Friday and they had this story um, about uh, the Cornell scientist, um, Brian uh, Wansink's, uh food behavior studies. And he has just retracted, uh, I want to say, six of them um, in the past week and made corrections on several others. And uh, the article I posted up is a Vox uh, article, Why the Joy of Cooking is Going After a Cornell Researcher. And for me, this is really fascinating because it's come out that um, in discussions in this lab, variety of people associated with lab and uh, associates who have worked with this lab have said that they do some uh, p hacking some p value hacking that they would get data that would be close to 0.05 and mm-hmm. then they would work to massage that data to get to statistical significance um, mm-hmm. and they the stories these these are stories that we've heard about these are things like um, you know, if you eat from a small plate versus a large plate, if you they did studies where they had a continuously filling soup bowl, they had things where they put Elmo stickers on apples and they had so kids could pick either cookies or apples and the, the apples had Elmo stickers on them. And so they had these ideas that they were trying to show and they have these hypotheses and they they were very splashy and they made really good um, science headlines, um, but there certainly is some question and doubt about how the data was manipulated in generating some of these statistical significances that they used um, to justify the the supporting of hypotheses that had. So for me, it hit a lot of interesting things. It ca- caused a little bit of that science practices that we talked about in integrity and. It was interesting the story that I was listening to because they were they made it sound like this is a failure of science and in fact I thought this was actually a good demonstration of the success of science because yeah people will sometimes publish science that doesn't hold up but we have a whole process to deal with that and that's right. that's what we see here is that people are questioning the data they're asking the questions and they're challenging um, the findings of these individual studies. Studies don't tell you the conclusion. They tell you an individual's conclusion. They don't tell you what science has concluded. And so I actually thought it's actually it boosts up science a little bit because it shows um, our process and how we work. Right. And and what happens when we don't follow the process? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't manipulate that data. There's, there's no <laughs> such thing as bad data. I tell my kids that all the time. <laughs> the, yeah. the data all is data. The, more data are better. Yeah. <laughs> the more data, the more data, the better. But, you know. Yeah. Can I throw this number out? 
No, no. you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I just was having that conversation with the, with my students just the other day. They were looking at their place because like, can we just ignore that colony on the plate? I was like, it's there. You can't ignore it. <laughs> can we just throw that number out? I was like, no, you can't do that. No, you can't. <laughs> All right. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Um, this was a great time. Let me go through my show credits. Um, you can support this episode uh, and all my episodes by going to patreon.com slash lots. Um, and uh, if you have any interest in supporting uh, what I do here and the the podcast allows me to maybe branch out a little bit. I'm hoping to do some things in the future with some, some future guests. So um, any support people are willing to do that uh, to send me, I would very much appreciate the other thing you get if you're a patreon is i invite you into a slack community where we have conversations with supporters of myself and john darko and david kanufke music on this and every episode are provided by jake jenkins and ex-magicians you can get show notes um, both at my patreon.com slash lots page and at lifeoftheschool.org you can follow me at mr matthew tweets or at life of the school um, are you on twitter yes and you are at Cheryl Hollinger. Yeah, I had to I had to uh, create a Twitter account for a grad's class, so we had to use our names. Ah, uh, so at Cheryl Hollinger, um, I'll make sure I put that into the show notes so it's nice and nice, easy click so people can follow you if they'd like. And so thank you again for joining me, and I will talk to everybody soon. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs>